1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 to 20, Paul continues to answer his critics who had accused him of deserting and deceiving the Thessalonians with no intention of returning. Paul passionately describes his love for Christ's church, expressing deep longing and yearning to see them again. They were essentially joined at the heart. On July 1st, 2019, uh, there was a set of conjoined twins, two little girls that were, that were born weighing a combined total of eight pounds, eight ounces at birth, and they were born in India, and they shared a single heart. Case of Thoracopagus, uh, twins joined face to face at the chest, and they had a shared heart. One heart, same pulse, same blood pressure. They were joined at the heart. What these twins were physically, Paul and the Thessalonians were spiritually. Healthy Christians are joined at the heart with fellow believers. They love one another intensely, and they esteem one another very highly. We see this in Scripture, we see this in this passage, that God connects the hearts of his children such that they intensely love one another and hold each other in high esteem. And we are living in a time now where many would say the church doesn't matter. And Paul is telling us here how much the people that are the church mean to him. In that location, he knew them, and he wanted to be with them. It was a beautiful letter, 1 Thessalonians. It was written, the church, in a time not unlike the one we live now. It was a time of idolatry being celebrated. It was a time of sin being paraded before their very eyes in the streets. Believers were being harassed by vicious opponents of Christ who harshly judged them. And 1 Thessalonians answers the immaturity, the pride, the division that are generated in those days by those infected by the world and tempted to cave to the pressure, and it speaks to the same issues today. 1 Thessalonians shows us how the beloved become beloved to one another as they look to Christ's return. Part of a beloved church. It's changed by the gospel. That is connected in relationships. That is committed to ministry. Ministry that pleases God. That is marked by courage to proclaim the gospel. I hope that your courage to proclaim the gospel is increasing and not waning. Pure motives to please God. Where you say, I want to please God with every ounce of my being every day of my life. And selfless service to others. We say it every week. We want to sacrificially serve Jesus that you would choose, you would resolve to sacrificially and selflessly serve others. Paul and Silas and Timothy had explained in beautiful terms to the church, they said, we were like a nursing mother and like a father teaching his children among you. We modeled to you what a godly life looks like. We modeled to you what it means to give godly help to fellow believers. We pointed you to Christ. We pointed you to his word that is at work in those who believe. As we saw last week, that work is praiseworthy. 
praise God and thank God for the work he is doing among fellow believers by his spirit through his word. And it is personal. It, it, it hits you in your life personally. But it's powerful because God does the work. It's persecuted because there's many enemies. But it is permanent because what God decrees comes about. And now Paul gets to the heart, this beautiful heart of what it means for the beloved to become beloved to one another. He explains how they were torn away in person. They wanted to see them face to face. And they were hindered like a pandemic quarantine from being together. They were expressing joy at changed lives in light of Christ's return. They were giving this beautiful, personal portrait of providential love, how healthy Christians are joined at the heart. We'll start at verse 17. What we see is that when you're joined at the heart, it's evidenced by this intense love and longing. It's just an intense love and longing that's being expressed here. And it starts with these, this word, but. Verse 17, but. He is contrasting himself to the persecutors that were harassing the church so deeply, and it's explained in verses 14 to 16. And he says, but since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time, in person, not in heart. He's giving heartfelt words about leaving them, and it's this affectionate, loving term he uses. It's the Greek word adelphoi. It's his brethren, brothers and sisters, people in the church. And he's explaining this painful experience because of their love for them. Like a child losing their parents. This is what this word, it's a very graphic word, torn away. We were torn away from you. This is a picture of being made an orphan, where both your parents die. It's a combo of, of being separated and being in mental anguish. It's a very graphic word. It means to be orphaned. It means to be bereaved. It means to make an orphan by separation. It's a parentless child, severe isolation, de- deprived and desolate. This is how he says they felt. This, this is what it was like for them. They, they were torn away. They've been chased out of town. You mentioned this situation that was forced upon them. It was only for a short time. And he says, we, we were pulled away, ripped away from you in person, but not in heart. Our hearts are connected. We're joined at the heart. And the heart is the seat of the emotions, the place of affection and the interconnection and love and they're longing to see them. And so he says in verse 17, we endeavored all the more eagerly, which means they were fixated on it. They were excessive about it. They were trying very frequently with great desire to see them. They were endeavoring to do this. They made every effort. They tried everything. They didn't just try one time. Oh, closed door. We won't do it. They wanted to be with them. It, it means to make haste to act. It's a great desire. It's intense longing. We were ripped from your grasp, he's saying. And he assures them, again, in person, not in heart. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they, they were robbed of their loved ones. They were anxious for a reunion. That's why they write, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Such heartfelt words that 
combating the rumors that his opponents had been circulating. Well, Paul didn't really care about you guys. He has no interest in coming back and being with you and helping you. And he only came the first time because of selfish reasons. He wanted to get something from you. He wanted you to pay him. They were chased out of town. And they had taken an interest in the church. And Paul wasn't playing favorites. By the way, he wasn't saying, hey, look, uh, Thessalonians, you're my favorites. Don't tell the Colossians. Don't tell the Philippians. It, I really like you guys the best. It wasn't like that. Here's what he told the Colossians. Though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He felt this way about all of the assemblies of believers. His words, by the way, were not just for good days, like, hey, I woke up in a good mood today, so I'm going to you know, encourage you. His pastoral concern is deeply rooted in love in every situation. In 1 Corinthians 5, he says, though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and then he ex- explains how they need to do some church discipline. In Philippians 1, he says this, it's only right for me to think this way about you because, and I love this, I have you in my heart. I have you in my heart. He says, you're all partakers of grace with me. In my imprisonment, so not just on the good days, in my imprisonment, in the defense and establishment of the gospel. God is my witness how, how much I deeply miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. They were connected at the heart. Charles Spurgeon once said, I would rather be chained in a dungeon, wrist to wrist with a Christian, than to live forever with the wicked in the sunshine of happiness. Hearts shaped by the word of God are tender toward the church of God. Sounds like the best of our 2020 lockdown. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm living in three years. Is it 19, 20, or 21 right now? I can't wait till 22 when everything gets wiped clean. There were some good things that came out of it. But if you're anything like me, one of our biggest problems is sometimes we don't want to be with fellow Christians. Oh, I don't like them. I don't like the way they act. I don't like this. I don't like that. Some forsake the assembly. And so it might seem a bit odd To hear Paul expressing so strongly, I really, really wanted to see you badly. Because some people are like, I'm good. I'm comfortable not seeing fellow Christians. But isn't it true that many of you, when the COVID-19 quarantines ended, and they ended, discovered how profoundly spiritual our physical gatherings are. That we are united in Christ spiritually, therefore we become physically present. And it's built on biblical truth. Jesus took a body. He who is God, who was with God, and and created the world, put on flesh to be with us, and he promised to build his church, his assembly, ecclesia, the gathering. Have you ever thought about this, that Jesus chose the name church? 
The church is the people of Christ wherever they gather. How do you, how do you go from avoiding God's people and not wanting to be together to strangely wanting to be together? There's a change that God only brings about by his spirit through his word in the lives of those who are willing to yield to his working. For the couple of months of not gathering in the early days of COVID-19, I think it was easy to feel like we were losing track of one another. And some of you may say, well, why do you keep bringing this up? It's because this is what we're living with. We're living with three years at one time, still. But at the time, if you look back, everyone was making phone calls, everyone was texting each other, but it was hard to feel like we were all together because we weren't. We're not going to hurt anybody's feelings or bash anybody, but some let it go on too long. Others are still hibernating. It was easy for people with a low view of the church to ghost the church. For those who it was merely meeting their own needs that they felt they needed, it became expendable. They got their consumer needs met elsewhere or found people who agree with their divergent views. But those committed to Christ and his church, no matter what, stayed in the assembly that God had put them in or made sure they were in an assembly faithful to Christ and Scripture. And it's true that when we see each other less, we think about each other less. And you might say, oh, wait, remember the old maxim, uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder? Not a, pro- not a prolonged absence. Out of sight, out of mind. And by the way, we can do this virtually. In fact, those of you that are on the live stream, we're doing this because we miss you so much and because some of you cannot get to church. You cannot get to church, and I talk to so many of you who say thank you for having a link to us that is sometimes your only link to this assembly unless someone calls you or visits you or sends you a letter. And so I would never presume to think that those who can't make it is somehow forsaking the assembly when all they want is to be with us in this room. But for everybody else, You could do it virtually, but that's not the church. The church is a gathering of believers. And this is not an info transfer. There's information being given, there's songs being sung, there's prayers being prayed, there's a lot of things that happen, but we're in a room together. It's like last week when we were taking the bread and the cup. Jesus said to do this when you gather. And anything else is a flimsy substitute, and we do what we can in the moment. But it's about being with the people of God and be reminded that we were saved by Jesus for a purpose. 
I said this to our midweek group that gathered last week. I said, I don't think there's a day that's gone by since 1982 that I haven't said at some moment in the day, Jesus saved me from my sins. I haven't thought that thought. And plenty of days that I forgot to call someone or forgot to read my Bible or forgot to do something that Christians do, but I don't think there has been one day that has gone by in all of those years that I have not had the thought, Jesus, you saved me. And that's what drives me to come to be with you. And that's what ought to drive you to come to be with the people of God. If you went into a foreign embassy and you went into an embassy, again, where it's an embassy in one country that represents another, and you would hear the language of that nation in that embassy. You would hear about their culture. You would eat the food that they eat, and you'd learn how they operate. And a gathered church is an embassy of heaven, a different nation. Citizens of Christ's kingdom, exiles, strangers on earth. And we're hearing and obeying the word of our supreme leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are an imperfect picture of the perfect heavenly assembly. Just as last week, the the bread and the cup that that we took are small tokens of the heavenly banquet to come, the marriage supper of the Lamb. I mean, we're we're eating styrofoam. Those little, I can't even chew them. And there's preservatives in the juice because we're using those little things. But they're they're just substitutes to, to point us, to remind us that we, one day, all those who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, will one day be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We want to be together to look forward to that day. And if this wasn't enough, Paul gets even more personal. In verse 18, when he says, because we wanted to come to you. He becomes more personal and theological. He says, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Proves how much he was desperate to see them and strong desire to return, this tug of heart connection. And Timothy and Silas had been able to go back to Thessalonica, but Paul had not, and it wasn't for lack of trying. He tried multiple times, but he says, Satan hindered us. We don't know why. We don't know what it was. We don't know if there was like enemies to the gospel that were. Barring his way out of town, we don't know if it was the thorn in the flesh. We don't know what kind of hindrance it was, but he wasn't able to go. Hinder is a strong word. It means to cut in on. It was originally used of breaking up a road to make it where you couldn't go through. It was used in a military sense of making a break to the enemy lines, getting through. It, it, it's an athletic, it was an athletic term meaning to cut in on someone during a race. 
That happened to me in 1978, and I have 18 stitches in my right leg to prove it. Someone cut on, in on me in a track race. But a hindrance is a strong, strong negative. Well, they had a deep longing to see them again, and they tried repeatedly to return. But Paul says, Satan stopped us. They dug a trench so that we couldn't get over it. Blew up the road so we couldn't advance. What is clear, theologically, is that Satan, within limits, is able to influence and retard the progress of the gospel. The devil is an enemy that does all he can to disrupt your spiritual progress. Peter says he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he says, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren in the world. Paul did not blame all changes of plans on Satan, by the way, so don't go around doing that. Oh, it's Satan's fault. No, it might just be your sin. Sometimes doors get closed because we hinder the work of the gospel. Sometimes, though, something really good is in the way. Paul told the Romans... The reason I have so often been hindered from coming to you is for all the, the ministry I'm doing in the regions beyond. I'm just doing so much ministry, I haven't been able to see you. Satan's present activity, by the way, is only a foretaste of the opposition that will come upon the people of God prior to Jesus' return. When we get into 2 Thessalonians, which will follow right after 1 Thessalonians, you're going to see that. Opposition. There's always opposition to Christ. Christ was insulted, he was falsely accused, he was conspired against by Herod and Pontius Pilate, he was murdered by those he came to save, and for some, it would have looked like, well, Satan must have succeeded. But gospel enemies do only what God has decided beforehand should happen. That's what Acts 4.28 tells us. God's purposes will always prevail. His plans will not be thwarted. The man is wicked, the devil schemes, God works out his eternal purpose. As Ephesians 1.11 tells us, he works all things after the counsel of his will. But hindrances abound. Even right now, if the world is, is watching, hindrances abound in our culture right now. Just to normal everyday life. You can't get the things you are waiting for on your front doorstep because we have container ships out in the ports. Have you looked out towards the ocean recently? The world is watching as the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach rank number one and two in the world for container ports. What's going to happen? Because there's this log jam of ships off the SoCal coast. Massive delays in getting the goods that you're waiting for. Just recently, ship traffic in San Pedro Bay broke records. 134 vessels in port, 86 were container ships with your precious cargo. 74 vessels were waiting offshore, 55 container ships. Many hiccups in the supply chain right now, folks. But the biggest immediate hindrance, they can't find people to drive the trucks to get it to your house. Hindered by lack of help. 
And Satan hindered the work of the gospel. Paul and his friends were hindered by Satan himself. Enemies abound towards the gospel. Thomas Watson once said this, The word of God has never lacked enemies. They've given out a law concerning scripture as Pharaoh did the midwives, concerning the Hebrew women's children, to strangle it in the birth. But God has preserved this blessed book to this day. The devil and his agents have been blowing at Scripture, light, at the light of Scripture, but could never blow it out. It was clear that it was lighted from heaven. And so if you think that in this present moment it looks as if evildoers and the devil have the upper hand, think again. Our God is sovereign and he is providentially orchestrating all things. As Daniel 4 put it, he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. And no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what are you doing or what have you done? No one's going to stop God. And he keeps his church. He preserves his church. And he makes you and I who belong to the church, if you belong to Jesus Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, if you believe in the Lord Jesus and his finished work on the cross as your substitute, God will make you willing to drop everything, to do whatever is in your power to be with fellow Christians. Dr. Sam Rayburn was the speaker of the United House United States House of Representatives, and he was in that position longer than any other man in history of our country, and there's a story about him that reveals his heart for people. The teenage daughter of a friend of his died suddenly one evening, and the next morning early, the man heard a knock on his door, and it was Mr. Rayburn at the door, and the speaker said, I, I've just come to see what I can do to help you, and the man in his grief says, look, we don't need any help, we're just making arrangements and Mr. Speaker says I will make some coffee for you and he goes into the kitchen and starts making coffee and the man says to him I thought you were supposed to be at breakfast with the president of the United States today and he says well I was but I called the president and said I have a friend who's in trouble I won't be there see healthy Christians joined at the heart love one another so intensely they will drop anything to be with their fellow believers, especially when they're in trouble. Healthy Christians joined at the heart. There is this love for one another that's intense. Moving on to verse 19. This joining at the heart, it was evidenced by this intense love, but also coupled with a deep affection and esteem. They, they, they esteemed one another very highly. Verse 19, he says, what... What is our hope? What is our joy? What is our glory of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Like, this is a real question. And you'd think the answer would be uh, Jesus or the Bible. The answer is you fellow believers, which is kind of startling to us, isn't it? He says, is it not you? They were instrumental in them coming to faith. They were instrumental in their continuing in the faith. And what they're doing here, like if, for parents, 
All parents take pride in their kids' achievements, and they, they want everyone else to know that their kids are the best kids ever and perfect and what have you, just like the share of kids and, you know, and grandkids, and, and they're just the best ever. And a parent's pride and in their children's achievements and their growth is human pride. We will say, hey, look at me. I must have had some part in that. But that's not what this is. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? They're glorying in what God has done in them. This is praising God. This is not a personal achievement that they were able to accomplish. This is not a, a, a thing that they did. They're, they're basically praising God. And they're asking these rhetorical questions. And they're saying, by the way, this is tied to our anticipation of the return of Christ for his church, of whom you are a part, and of whom you are beloved by us, and we want to be with you. These expressions of endearing affection and high esteem, you're our joy, you're our glory. They, you mean everything to us. As a father would dote on a beloved child, Paul glories in what God did in them through his ministry. The Bible tells us in Proverbs that grandchildren are a crown of the aged and the glory of children is their fathers. Paul Paul was their father in the faith. When Jesus was baptized, the father declared, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Father announcing his complete satisfaction with the sovereign Savior. Paul is saying that God's coming. We are going to experience the realization of all of our hope, all of our joy, and, and the glory when Christ comes. That word is important. Christ is coming back. This word coming, it, it points to the, the visit of a of a sovereign to the state, it is, a, is marked, the arrival is marked by the giving of an appropriate gift. Contributions collected to make a crown of gold to present to the king at his coming. Paul says, the crown that I will present to Christ is you. It blows my mind how God would give a body of people such love for one another that is not human but rather supernatural. Is it not you? We know what's going to happen. And when we get into chapter 4, we're going to see it in depth. But at Christ's future appearing, every Christian will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the works of every Christian will be evaluated by God. And Paul says, I'm confident that when Christ comes in his presence, this will be joy and victory. Because you're real believers. And in view of his impending return, like, Let's get going. The time is short. This is why Romans 12 says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. We have a contest to see who can show honor the most. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Abide in him, as John said, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his appearing. In Isaiah 62, we we read these words spoken to Jerusalem. 
You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of our God. God determined to make his people a lighthouse for the nations, give them a new name that would reflect their status. He says in Isaiah 62, verse 4, your name shall be Hezpsavah, my delight is in her, is what it means, and Beulah, which means married to the Lord. There will be glory, there will be joy, there will be rejoicing, and they will all be pointed towards the Lord Jesus. Revelation 4 tells us they will cast their their crowns before the throne. Say, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In Titus 2, we read that we are waiting for the blessed hope, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it has an impact now, right now. And the reason why is because those who long most intensely for the return of Christ, love Christ's family most intensely. And they praise God for his work of grace in view of the personal, promised, bodily, visible, imminent return of Christ for his church. Christ will meet his church face to face. All believers give an account of their life to God and That's why it matters how you and I live right now. That's why it matters the choices you might make this afternoon or this evening or tomorrow or the week after. God will judge the world according to his perfect justice and righteousness and it's important. It was important for the early church and it's significant for you and I how we live today because there's gospel work to be done and they will know we are Christians by our love and true love cares and Paul is expressing this genuine concern that every Christian has for one another and even, even in that phrase that we repeat so glibly, in Christ, that every Christian is in Christ and in the family of God and should be in a local fellowship, every, every Christian has the inexpressible expressed in two words, in Christ, in the family of God, that fellowship then would become more than chit-chat on the plaza, but sharing of our lives. Vance Havner once spoke of Christian fellowship and said, it has almost become a lost art. I recall how as a boy I sat before the open fire on Saturday night with, while my father and the visiting minister talked long and late about the things of God. I remember John Brown, deacon in my first country church, who used to visit and talk until midnight. There, were time, there was time in those days, he says, But who can take time off today to meditate at the master's feet, like Mary of old, or to share his fellowship with other Christians? Fellowship has come to mean a noisy after-session after church with coffee and cookies and a lot of idle chatter about everything on earth but spiritual things. How many Christian homes know how to converse about Jesus Christ? Would anybody listening in on your conversation be helped in their soul. Some of you are troubled with the troubles of the day as all of us are. Don't allow the troubles of this life to cloud and discourage you away from Christian fellowship. Jesus will soon remove our troubles from us and take us to be with himself. Paul 
is expressing something very, very dear. It's the strength of his feelings for the church. He says in verse 20, you are our glory and joy. More tender words may not have ever been spoken. You are our glory and joy. You know what that tells me? Jesus will take our troubles away. He will take us to be with himself, but also you and I don't have to right every wrong that gets perpetrated against us. We leave room for the wrath of God. We leave room for the patience of God. Instead of looking for revenge, we look for the day when God will do what is just. But for now, just bask in those words, you are our glory and joy. I don't think a pastor or an elder would be a pastor or an elder if they couldn't say that to their church. The Thessalonians are the reason why the missionaries are glorifying God with great jubilation. That's why I thank God every day for this assembly. Paul is silencing all insinuations that he doesn't care about the church. They are greatly loved and highly esteemed. He makes them feel as if they were the most important people on earth. Queen Victoria once shared her impressions of her two most famous prime ministers. Of Gladstone, she said, when I am with him, I feel I am with one of the most important leaders in the world. On the other hand, she confessed that when she was with Disraeli, he made her feel as if I am one of the most important leaders of the world. I think Paul was making the church feel like that. Extreme longing, this intense love, this high esteem. And if that's a problem for us, and it might be that our problem is a lack of desire for true fellowship, you might even be tempted to say, I do not want what they wanted. I don't want to be in a small group. I don't want to be a mentor to anyone. I don't want more friends. But those who put the welcome mat out for the word also put the welcome mat out for people in the church that they belong to. And it's evidenced by a a, a genuine concern. It's evidenced by a genuine care, generous care and godly rejection of ungodly division. I think we need to be reminded often, I think we need to review often what it means to be a part of Christ's church in, in a local church where we are connected Kind of like sprinklers. Now, in our yard, we have all these sprinklers under the ground, and they just, they're old and they keep breaking. And like every week, there's something cracking or breaking. And when one part cracks or breaks, everything gets affected. It's the same with the church. And there must be such love. There must be this kind of love. But why such love? And how could Paul have such a love? We stand back in awestruck wonder at the grace of God and say, how could Paul express such love? It's because the church is essential and there is a present plan and a future plan of God for his church. Whoever belongs to the true church are all the redeemed and the redeemed need to be part of a local assembly called a church that we gather and we do preaching and teaching. It's central. It's Joining is necessary. Some of you need to join this church. Discipline is loving, so when that ever happens, it's a loving thing. And, and you need to love the members of, of the church you're a part of uh, who are different than you, who, 
who are outsiders, who love outsiders, and you're led by a plurality of elders that ought to be modeling servant leadership, and I know every one of our men, and that's the kind of men they are. We gather together on earth, and we represent Christ's kingdom in heaven. We proclaim the good news. We teach people to obey Christ's commands. We encourage one another. We remember Christ's work through the ordinances. We display God's holiness and love. We, we do this in a unified and diverse body where there's no mad dash to the parking lot once the services are over unless you have to be something, be somewhere right away. People are loving one another in such a way that they look past the petty differences and disagreements and unite around a common passion for the gospel. And they mend the fences. They want good for others. They connect in relationships, commit to ministry. Where if you're in a household, you teach your, your, your household the things of God from the word of God and husbands lead in homes as servants and parents are strong advocates for what is right and you do relationships and you do community. And I've said this before, but a lot of issues that hit the church should have self-corrected at home within the family before they broke out and affected the church. But are you joined at the heart with fellow Christians? This is the question for you today. Are you joined at the heart with fellow Christians? Now, by the way, if it's only those you like, yours may be a fragile, fleshly, self-centered love. Let me tell you the difference about this love that we're seeing in this passage. By all indications, it had none of the fleshly human distinctions or conditions that we put on our relationships. Well, I like them. They're like me. They agree with my politics. They agree with my social views. They gossip like me. They allow certain sins. It makes it easy to be around them. Or, you know, I can't be around those other people. I have to protect myself. My flesh pushes against a love like this too. But I think our spirits say yes to it. We really do want this kind of love. Paul even said, I'd rather be wronged and mistreated. What seems to be the case for Paul and really for the whole New Testament for that matter is that their love was indiscriminate. Everyone was loved. Everyone in the church, no matter who, even, even the troublemakers that would need to be corrected. The love like Paul had originates in God and is indiscriminate. It loves all and, it, and it's aware. It, it's, it's, it's self-aware, but it's also people aware that there's a multitude of issues that everyone is dealing with and there's a lot of backstory and so we're careful and sensitive with one another in the things we say or the things we do. And you love your family in Christ because Christ first loved you. Most of us, if we're being really transparent, realize that there's probably a lot of ways we've shortcut true biblical fellowship and love. We don't, sometimes we just say, I'm going to put up with that person. And we need to actively choose to love everyone in this local church. Yep, you don't have to be best friends with everyone. But Christ has joined us at the heart, and we aren't to oppose what Christ ordained. 
Through separation and suffering, sincere affection grows and perfect cure for divisions or fractured fellowship, crippled Christians is for Thessalonians and the love that is shown. It answers the critical spirit, answers the distrust and suspicion, suspicion that many have towards one another today. Last week, a small plane crashed in, in San Diego, it hit a home, kind of demolished the home, but then a fire broke out, the subsequent fire then destroyed the home. But there was a few things that survived the flames that were pretty notable for the couple that lived in the home. There was a wedding ring and a photo of the couple and a letter that, a, that the husband wrote to his wife on their wedding day. And there's symbols of their love that had survived. And they state they're going through this hard time, but their love is strong. Well, in the beloved church of the Lord Jesus Christ, only God's love can overcome sin's destruction and preserve relationships that is tested by fire. We're joined at the heart. Look behind the differences. Look beyond them. Go beyond natural affinity, those you like. God's love generates love for all the body, whoever belongs to this local assembly. That's a healthy Christian joined at the heart with others. You love intensely. You esteem one another highly. Because Jesus Christ is our greatest treasure. The loving God makes us beloved. We love the beloved Savior. We love his family. Because Jesus supernaturally saves sinners and makes us family. It was fellowship of this family kind joined at the heart that brought John Bunyan, the village tinker, to Christ. In his book, Grace Abounding to Chief of Sinners, he recalls being a lost and profane young man who overheard a group of village women over enjoying sweet fellowship. One day the good providence of God, he says, did put me in Bedford. And in one of the streets of that town, I came where there were three or four women sitting at the door in the sun and talking about the things of God. And being now willing to hear them talk, I drew near to hear what they said. But I understood it not, for they were far above out of my reach, for their talk was about a new birth, the work of God on their hearts, and how they were convinced of their miserable, sinful state without Christ. And they talked how God had visited their souls with his love in the Lord Jesus and with what words and promises they had been refreshed and comforted and supported against all the temptations of the devil. They reasoned about the suggestions and temptations of Satan in particular and told to each other the way that they had been afflicted and how they were held up by God under Satan's assaults. And Bunyan said, I thought they spoke as if joy did make them speak. They spoke with such pleasantness of Scripture and with such grace in all they said that they were to me as if they had found a new world. And my heart began to shake. I mistrusted my condition. And when I heard and considered what they said, I left them and went, but their talk went with me. And I was greatly affected with their words. 
and I made it often my business to go again and again into the company of these poor people because I could not stay away. This church must not be a place that you just feed at, but a community where you faithfully fellowship with your family in Christ in the fear of God because you cannot stay away. Lord God, please make this true. Please make this true by your mercy and your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you have bound our hearts together in so many amazing ways. Lord, heal hearts. Help the fellowship, Lord. May we reflect your glory. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.